Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast, a podcast for athletes, coaches, and anyone looking to perform at their highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with a platform to perform. I'm your host as always, Todd Davidson, and on episode 25 of the Platform to Perform podcast, I have the Head of Athletic Development at St. David's College, Landudno, Ross Williams. How are you doing today, Ross? Um, very well, yeah. Really uh, excited to be here because it's always great to talk shop, uh, so looking forward to it. Excellent. Let's get stuck in. One of the uh, one of the questions I love asking guests, uh, apart from obviously their background, is why do they do what they do? So you're currently the head of athletic development at St David's College, but why do you do what you do? Um, well, I thought I did what I did uh, because of my love of science and that that real S and C nerd within me. But since working in a school especially a school like St. David's, which is a special place, and, and hopefully we'll touch on that. Um, it's because everybody has a natural affinity to enjoy movement, and so many people won't realise that through traditional PE models. I think that um, to understand your body and how it moves and the joy that we can receive through movement is a massive part of learning about yourself and about education so it's really my mission to to give everybody that equal opportunity and you mentioned through uh traditional models which we'll get into uh in just a second so do you want to give a little bit more background to uh st david's college because you mentioned as we said those traditional models and almost uh hinting at a p education curriculum that is accessible to all pupils so do you want to give a little bit more background to uh, St David's College? So uh, we're a relatively new school um, just over 50 years old um, and it was the school was built on a foundation of uh, three tiers one of which being spirituality <clears throat> the second of which being creativity and the third being uh, physical tier so we're lucky in that the sense that phys, uh, physical uh, physicality is a part of the school ethos and it's a part of education that shouldn't be separated um, because as I alluded to in the in my why if you're if you, if you don't develop that relationship with yourself in terms of your physicality and your movement I think you're you're missing out on a big part of learning about who you are um, so we're really lucky in that aspect that the school embraces that. Um, and that's through PE and a, one of the world's leading outdoor education departments as well. Um, so it's it's been easy in the sense that the school has that in its foundations. So some of my suggestions, which we'll uh, hopefully get onto on onto how to operate this unique curriculum, have really aligned with the direction that the school wants to go in as well. So in in our chatting offline and uh, previous podcast attempts, yeah. you, mentioned, um, you mentioned that you come from an S&C background and you've been in the fortunate position to be able to actually write a lot of the curriculum you deliver at St. David's. Um, yeah. Before we dive into the intricacies of that, the there are several people who confuse sport for PE. So do you want to touch upon, in your opinion, what are the key similarities and perhaps the key differences between sport and PE? 
yeah sure so um for me there there is a difference uh, but the similarity is movement um sport is is a way of expressing who you are on on the pitch or the court or or the field and you express yourself through movement so that also unfortunately becomes a limiting factor um if you are have a lower um, movement competency than than other individuals it, then sport can be quite marginalizing and that's why i think it's important that pe um is an opportunity to develop a, a better movement competency so you can access sport if you choose to or any other physical activity uh, i mentioned we've got a great outdoor education department so it, you may enjoy the outdoors a better understanding of your movement um, capacity will help you to enhance that joy of the outdoors so that's where why sport for me can't be the foundation um, or it's probably not the most efficient way of building the foundation, which I'm sure we'll touch on uh, as we go. Yeah, no, that that makes that makes perfect sense to me. And uh, a question we we kind of joked about it offline, um, but you obviously your role is head of athletic development. Now, some people may think it's splitting hairs, whether it's athletic development, strength conditioning. Uh, or even as we said offline, you said you would just describe yourself as a PE teacher because it's easier. Um, yeah. What is the difference between, for example, athletic development then and physical education, or or is there a difference? Um, personally, I I don't think there's a difference between athletic development and, and physical education because I think everybody has an athletic ability, and everybody has. Uh, there's an opportunity for everyone to improve that ability. Um, so, and, and for me, that is what good PE should encourage. Um, I can differentiate the term S and C a little bit more coming from a performance background, because for me, sport isn't functional. Um, it's got very specific elements. And uh, obviously the injuries that happen in sport just prove or certainly would be a strong argument to say it's not functional. So therefore, you can kind of justify some of the more sciencey approaches we take in the gym and the specific development exercises, um, because we're preparing athletes to, to do something which is specialised. PE needs to be a lot more general. Um, it needs to be about developing a massive variety of movement capacity. And I would call that athletic development as well, because it's developing the opportunity for these children to express themselves in an athletic way, athletic way. So it may as well be called athletic development as well for me. No, I like that a lot. It's funny when I delivered a CPD to um, the P department that I was working with a couple of years ago. I was trying to say, look, we're all on the same team here. And I literally drew a Venn diagram and I had strength conditioning on one side and P on the other. And I said, look, we are both trying to create children who are better movers who can then, if they choose to enjoy sport or yeah. just physically and psychologically more confident for whatever life throws at them. So that definitely makes, yeah. makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and in terms of streamlining this message that sport might be a part of PE, but is not necessarily, does not necessarily equal PE. 
how important is it to be able to streamline that message to parents, kids and other staff members? Um, it's important to manage expectations, I think. Um, what we're trying to create is, a, is an accessible curriculum for all our students. But at the same time, we don't want to be built purely on participation. Um, we, we, it's only right that those students who want to excel in a sport have the opportunity to do so. So for me, that's already an easy sell to parents um, if they have that expectation of their children. What's nice here is we're able to also say to parents who maybe have a perception about sport that is negative um, through their own experiences in school. This is not purely about sport. Um, if your child has um, dyspraxia or a coordination difficulty, we're the perfect place and we're developing a curriculum that caters for them as well. So that it's nice to be able to have a message that can be differentiated and is genuine. Um, and, and that's where the real focus needs to be. It's on parents who may have had certain experiences in, in their own school and saying that this is a different approach and, and, and we aim not to marginalise, but to offer that ability to, to progress for everyone. And uh, out of interest, just in preparing for this podcast and us chatting uh, offline, you said, yeah. what, 60% of your students are either dyslexic or dyspraxic? Uh, it's, it's it's the other way. So it's about about forty percent, forty percent, which is important because you know many students uh, won't have those um, extra challenges. Um, so we need to cater for everyone. But the key message for me is that this is not a P curriculum um, for dyslexic and dyspraxia. This is what I believe to be the best approach for everyone uh, in every school, and I think it's the it's the neat, unique challenges that we've had to face here, which has helped me realise that this is probably the approach for everyone. Yeah, and, and it's funny just on this subject of, for example, dyslexic children or other children with special educational needs, the amount of times I've had CPD on it. And I think to myself, let's not, for example, I know it sounds semantic, but these aren't dyslexic children, dyspraxic children. These are children with dyslexia, with dyspraxia. Yeah. And oftentimes the CPD is stuff and you're like, hang on a minute, isn't this just good teaching? And it'll be like, oh, make sure you give simple, clear instructions, uh, make sure there's a demonstration, make sure there's, you know, other opportunities for them to access it. And you're like, hang on a minute, shouldn't we be doing this regardless of a child's specific needs? Oh, yeah, completely, completely agree with you there. Definitely. So how do you, out of interest with your children who do have uh, dyslexia dyspraxia or other educational needs i'm assuming because there's quite a large percentage of your cohort um that do have these needs yeah i'm assuming that they will be in a class with children who for example i don't know higher ability pupils or so they're all in that same class that's right yeah and i think that's such a valuable aspect as well um we've built a, a curriculum that is leveled on um effort rather than ability so what that affords to our students is you could have somebody who is is less um, sort of naturally able in, in terms of sport, for example, uh, teaching the first team 
rugby, fly half, how to move in the gym. Because uh, there's there's no um, sort of hierarchy in terms of um, ranking because we've completely changed our leveling process. So if you take advantage of the provision that's on offer, you will get a better level rather than um, turning up with an ability and expressing that ability and doing nothing else um, won't necessarily get you the highest level. I, I like that a lot because, uh, for example, in one of the classes I was teaching this week, one of the girls asked, oh, what, what, what set is this? And I felt like saying the set is is irrelevant. Like yeah. you're, you shouldn't be putting in any less or any more effort just because you're in, I don't know, set one, set three, or whether you're even in a set. Yeah. Definitely, that's the way it should be, and um, it was really evident for us over lockdown. We did a lot of online teaching, and um, some of our students who may not um, sort of have a natural affinity to want to express themselves through sport really stepped up um, and developed a, a really good relationship with how they move and kind of challenging themselves on that movement because there was no uh sort of there was no opportunity to to do it in a team sport environment so the fact that our curriculum allowed them to be rewarded for that um was a really nice reflection and we uh we spoke briefly in uh our previous podcast attempt about one of the issues with a sport-based PE model in that it inadvertently sets kids up for failure. Um, do you want to elaborate a little bit on that, if you can remember the conversation? Yeah, so um, I remember putting something on Twitter a while back. I, I think I said, um, does sport develop movement competency or does it just highlight those that can already move? Um, and I think it's probably the latter in, in most cases. Um we're asking in a lot of cases, we're asking children to perform um, sports skills, which I sort of term them as movement problems um, without the tools to, to unpick those problems. Um, and that's, that creates a lot of, in my experience, psychological um, fear and then marginalization. And and that's probably worse in a in a sports approach that focuses on isolated skills, because it can make it even more evident. Um, we try and uh, deliver purely through gamification, which I know we might touch on, um, which feels safer for the student because access can be really individualised and tailored. Um, but the most important thing is that they're learning how to solve these movement problems before we ask them to to add more complexity which are sports skills yeah and it's funny because what you say there again is one of my arguments against a sport-based model in that sport is inherently so complex and when you go into sport in its traditional sense with its traditional set of rules there are so many things for a kid to learn that even if they did have all the movement skills, it's just so overwhelming. Um, yeah. And again, I, I really like the point you made there about movement competencies and highlighting it. Um, a phrase that I came across in a book that I was reading the other day is something called the Matthew effect. And it basically says that 
kids who have something will then continue to gain more of it and kids who have not will continue to get worse of it so if you've got kids who have had sporty parents who have had a sporty upbringing then they thrive in this sport-based model whereas kids who haven't just simply get left behind for me yeah. in, in any subject that's like imagine if you had a maths or an english curriculum and it's like oh well you didn't get taught sums by your parents you don't read to your parents oh well that's a shame because uh guess what we're going to be doing yeah definitely and in terms of your um in terms of integrating your movement into your lessons then uh, in one of your blogs i was reading you described it as a semi-organized functional movement session so in our chat you mentioned that you're a strength conditioning coach almost coming into a physical education world and trying to strike the balance so do you want to elaborate a little bit on what semi-organized looks like to you yeah of course um one point I'd like to make, which I think is key, is that it's great to see um, S&C professionals getting opportunities in education. Um, I think we can add lots of value there, but it's important to stress that we don't try and turn um, PE into mini versions of, of elite sport and academies. Um, I think you mentioned it Todd, uh, offline, that they're children at the end of the day um, and everything needs to have fun at its core. So for me, semi-organized means themes. Um, if the theme, we often like to start the year with kind of um, landing mechanics, but there's no reason for me in a PE lesson to go into great detail as to uh, breaking down position, what does it look like, layering up progressions. We can play tons of games to get landing mechanics in. Um, we can we can move we can jump around like frogs. Uh, we can play adapted versions of end ball net ball where they're asked to stop with the ball. Um, we can harness good good P practitioners and the knowledge they might have that we don't and collaborate on. Here's the theme: it's landing mechanics. What games can we play which involve um, some decelerating, some some jumping and landing? And then can we just break away for a minute of a 10 minute session just to give some context to maybe to, to the students? And maybe that doesn't happen at all in five, six, seven, eight. Maybe it's just the year nines who get that extra little bit of context. Um, but we certainly, in my opinion, shouldn't be going in with an overly structured progression by progression linear approach. It should be just we're assuming that by playing enough games, guiding with our professional knowledge, but from the background, they're accumulating layers of these things almost unconsciously until they become older and able to, um, or even take more of an interest in it. I, I think you've absolutely nailed it there because I think it's so easy as a strength and conditioning coach going into PE teaching and I mean, I'm certainly guilty of it where I've sat back and observed PE and I've thought, what, you've done no warm up whatsoever. Where are the movement skills coming in? And it's it's easy to be biased or think that, and we discussed about the notion of strength and conditioning versus personal training. And it's not that, same with PE and SNC, it's not that one is inherently better than the other. It's different skill sets, which absolutely can learn from each other. Um, oh yeah, 100%. Vern Gap, I think it's a Vern Gap better phrase that I've used in previous presentations. Uh, and it's strength and conditioning on tap, not on top, because mm -hmm. it's too easy to bulldoze your way into sessions. And as you said, try and 
come up with this genius model and I don't know, let's assume behavior is not an issue. And by the end yeah. of secondary school, all the kids can do it, but they're so bored. They never want to use these movement skills or even they don't want to explore movement skills because you've done it in such a linear or yeah. step-by-step way. Definitely. Definitely. I think um, it, it's got to be, people, people talk about tactical periodization in elite sport. It's that collaboration between all the teachers and what we can all bring. Um, and, it, and that needs to happen away from the lesson uh, so that we all can come together and, and harness the energy of the children and guide it towards some different themes we have rather than um, me or any PE teacher thinking that we are, you know, the most, most important part of the process. Um, we're not. It's about the children um, and, and how we can enhance their experience, not about how we can uh, sort of project onto them what we think uh, would be optimal. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely nailed it for uh, for my money there. In terms of your in terms of your curriculum, then um, yeah. we were having a chat about it offline. Do you want to give an overview of what your curriculum currently looks like? Yeah, sure. So um, we're looking at sort of key stage three. Um, they get three eighty minute curriculum lessons a week. Um, one of those lessons they rotate between three activities every two weeks and those activities are in the gym with myself which I can expand on a bit more what we do um another one called continuous movement which is uh, taking some of the concepts of your traditional sort of cross-country um sort of endurance type activities and putting them within games so they're just continuously moving in something that's probably going to look more like uh, a computer game than a cross-country course and then the third one is is some kind of racket sport just because um we like the crossover in terms of movement skills and a little bit of tactical uh, awareness so that's one lesson they rotate between those three things second 80 minute lesson is what we've called donor sports where we will explore any sport it's really important that I emphasize that because any sport can be a, a donor sport. And then the third one is what we've called focus sports. And they're just the sports that we have a, a good affinity for as, as a smaller school and tend to do well in. Um, but it's all delivered through gamification. So it, none of those sports that we focus on, I would hope, look like uh, your sort of traditional club based approaches, perhaps. That's the that's the overview, um, as well as that activity schedule. Um, children could be getting up to eight hours of physical activity a week if they want it. I, I mean, I like that a lot. I mean, we'll dive into the continuous movement in a second. Yep. But one of the reasons I like that so much is, for example, I always have kids, and I'm sure you have it probably too, where kids will say, oh, can we play a game? And even though you'll design a game, if the game isn't, exactly the sport they know even if it's a sport with minor tweaks they'll still ask when are we playing a game like they won't connect the dots um and i explained to one of my pupils this week who's like can we have a game of dodgeball despite the fact we played dodgeball the only condition i had was that rather than somebody going out they would just do something like perform three squats and be back in 
and that the higher ability pupils are restricted them to specific throwing zones to challenge them a little bit more. Yeah, nice. And I try to explain her that, to her the reason why I do things like this is because I believe traditional sport in the format we're used to seeing it, as you said, marginalises pupils. So in dodgeball, the kid who can't throw, can't catch, can't dodge, what is then going to sit out and get less movement experience despite the fact they need more of it? And yeah. even if we take something like netball in its traditional format, um, you, you've now got a child who is restricted to a zone and there's one ball, six other players, and they never see the ball. And you think yeah. if you if you put heart rate monitors on these children, in the in, with some of them, this is the only physical activity they get a week. And if you looked at their heart rate zone, you'd think they were probably sat in a classroom reading a book or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so your yeah, continuous yeah. movement and the you talk about stealing ideas from computer games. Um, so do you want to just give us an overview of what that might look like? Yeah, sure. I mean, we had it. We had a look at how we do things this year. And um, if you say to a, a child, you know, we're gonna we're gonna run cross country, you're already speaking to a smaller percentage who who are gonna have a, an enjoyment for that. And uh, so, what we like to do is give autonomy to the pupils. So, if we create um, a game where the amount of movement they do is self-determined, but we also remove the barriers for access. And we're hoping they'll develop an intrinsic motivation through enjoyment of the game. And then the difficulty comes in for us as adults is we're competing against, uh, we're competing to design games that are as instantaneously rewardable as computer games. Um, and we don't i don't i don't anyway play these games as much, that much and i wasn't a big gamer um when i grew up uh so we really uh try and find out from even our younger students what's meaningful to them so it could be a traditional game of 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 tip or tag um they're hopefully continuously moving if we can add the constraints that you know, allow access for everyone to do so. And then asking the children, you know, how is how do we enhance your experience? Is it bringing in um, a power-up zone or a respawn zone? You know, some of these terms um, from, from games that we see, uh, some of the boys will get a rugby tackle bag and we'll call it a riot shield or uh, they'll run around with a tag belt and we'll call them lives or tokens. And a lot of this comes from talking with the students. What, what's, what's big in the gaming world for you at the moment? I spend a lot of time uh, in the boarding houses doing duty now. And when they're playing on games, I'm getting my notebook out. Why is this meaningful to you? You know, um, do you enjoy this? Which Do you like the side missions or do you like the, the progression through the levels? And often it's the side missions they like. So we can play a game of... of uh, end the ball every point that's scored you come out of the game and do a connect four with cones on the side and some will find more meaning in the side mission than they will in the actual game this has all come from our understanding of computer games at the moment i think that's absolutely class one thing you've mentioned there that i don't know why i've never thought about it um but I'm always intrigued as to, for example, I know if I did a basketball lesson, I said, we're doing shooting and all you're going to do is shoot for the next 60 minutes. 
I know that some of my classes would absolutely love it. And now you've mentioned yeah. it, I can only think the reason why it's so enjoyable is you shoot and you score, you shoot and you miss. Without anyone telling you anything, you've got an instant feedback loop. And even yeah. if the technique's wrong, I mean, who cares if it's gone in the basket? That's that's a brilliant point. Um, yeah. And I also like the side levels, uh, the side missions thing, because I've definitely been guilty of, as soon as the team scores, new condition, new condition, new condition. Yeah. So eventually you've got the higher ability team and the low ability team still playing each other, but effectively playing several different variations of the game. That's that's class. I like that a lot. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you can have a side mission um, and you could you could pull out six of your higher ability pupils to play the side mission. Changes the game, offers more access to to those who have been struggling to to engage, or you can take out um, those that are struggling to engage. Same concept. Um, if if the game involves um, catching and throwing, and you've got students who uh, may have some anxiety around the ball, we've given them things like pool noodles and said, right, you're a drone. Go and tap as many people as you can. Um, you know, give them some targets because then they're continuously moving, but you've taken away some of the complexity and increased their affordance to engage. So they're happy because they're now engaged in a way that's meaningful for them um, without making them, without over stressing the point of why they may have struggled to engage. Yeah, that's nice. I like that. Um, And it's also a more subtle way of dealing with things. I had a pupil in um, a rugby lesson the other day and I noticed he was very overly cautious. I said, oh, what, what, what's, what's the matter? I could tell you, obviously, movement skills weren't the best, but he just said, oh, I'm, I'm scared of the ball. And I was a bit like, oh, well, I was going to give you, I don't know, a superpower where you can't get tackled or, you know. But that, dare I say, only highlights the issue more because it's like, oh, well, we can't tackle this pupil. And he's yeah. probably more than aware that that constraint has been made. Yeah to avoid the issue rather than circumnavigate it. So I might have to steal that pool noodle idea. Yeah, no, no worries. So the equipment we've, with the gal each lesson looks absolutely mad, but I love it, you know, and often they, they come up with their own ways to use it as well, which it's a two way process. So I learned so much off them, um, probably more so than they pick up from us. <laughs> And uh, in one of your videos that I saw uh, online the other week, you were talking about, and we, I can't remember whether it was this podcast or our chat offline, but we were talking about um, how isolated skill practice actually just highlights those who cannot do. Yeah. I saw a video where uh, it might have been yourself, it might have been a colleague, and a, you had a massive Swiss ball were just bouncing a rugby ball off to catch uh, a rugby pass. Do you want to go into a little bit more detail about how you can have dare I say a better version of an isolated drill that still offers variability well I think that's the key word Todd it's it's variability it's it's skill drills for me have a limited um sort of usefulness the only positive I can see personally obviously this is my opinion is is for context but even when we're using a skill drill for context it's how we catch and pass for me there needs to be um, an element of variability in it, otherwise it, it's, it soon runs its course in terms of usefulness. Um, and then, as you mentioned, for for not wanting to highlight the students who um, who who struggle to access that those skills, 
if you hide it within variability, it becomes less clear, uh, you know, and obvious who can and can't do it as well. Um, and we use uh, flow state concepts. So if we can start with um, activities that give a little bit of anxiety, you know, they're, they're a bit unsure, but we know there's going to be plenty of opportunities for success first. And then we increase the complexity. We can hopefully reduce this fear of the ball or fear of the tackle. It's all about psychological safety. Um, maybe to give an example, if you started, if you were looking at um, catch and pass as a basic skill and started with a game of, we've been playing a lot of Gaelic football and over the course of, of 20 minutes, you slowly bleed into traditional rugby. That fear of handling the ball reduces because we maybe started with a Swiss ball, playing Gaelic football with a big giant Swiss ball. And then we've gone down to a football and we haven't said you've just got to catch. You can kick, you can bounce, you can um, tap it off straight away. And then by the time we get to rugby, we've hopefully got them into flow state where they are less fearful of the ball and they're starting to use the ball to manipulate their opposition as an added extra rather than not wanting the ball. Um, so we've, we've, you, you can't say we haven't been looking at the skills of catch and pass, but they've been embedded within this invariable environment where that skill can look 10 different ways in 10 different touches but it's still the fundamental skill of catching and passing. And I think what you just said there is another argument for me anyway, why PE doesn't have to look like traditional sport, because if you're still focusing on passing and catching, as you said, a lot of kids who haven't accumulated hours and hours of sport or free play, even the shape of a rugby ball, it, it just, yeah, just, just feels off to them. So what yeah. you described there, I think is, is perfect. And again, another reason why sport in its traditional format is not perhaps the best vehicle to drive kids towards physical literacy. Yeah, definitely. No, I, I, I like that a lot. How have you, out of interest, how have you played about with um, gamifying the fundamental movements? So we spoke about not necessarily using the same provision for movement that you would in an S&C session versus a PE lesson. So how have you gone about gamifying those types of movements out of interest? Um, we've we've tr just tried to add competition. Um, and then we let the students select uh, their own teams more so when we're looking at movement exclusively than when we're looking at um more complex sports skills uh so if you uh if we're looking at um jumping for example if you can partner up with someone and then compare the distance jumped and then we can walk around as a staff body and guide with some questioning over technique and outcomes rather than getting the group together showing them the skill um, and the and the intricacies of positioning and then asking them to perform it we like to start with some the start with what can you do and and add some incentive through competition and then guide and question um 
and we might start with a game of of tip if we're looking at change of direction, um, and then we'll we'll pull a, a child out who who who's really engaged. What's fun about this? How can we um, make it more fun? Or we'll pull out someone who's less engaged. How can we help you access this game of tip? Is it is it is the pitch too big? Do you feel there's too many people? And we may split into smaller um, games of tip with with four aside. Get them bibbed up blow a whistle, send a seeker out from each team to go into another team. You can do this with a ball as well. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is a lot of our lessons will start with play straight away. And if I want them to interact with the ground from a movement standpoint, we'll play our game of tip with animal movements. Um, If I want them to evade, change direction, we'll play our game of tip on our feet. Sometimes with equipment sometimes without but a lesson will very very rarely start with instruction and demonstration yeah i yeah i think that's fine and again that for me is another thing where i was having a chat with um another guy who's appeared on the podcast um tom green and we said that what we're starting to notice is snc's within school environments or um, differences between academies and schools is from a gym perspective you might have a ramp warm-up and you might do some movement yeah you'll do some activation mobility then you'll potentiate whereas when you're working with kids who may or may not be sporty like in my mind I'm like you just need to let them get going yeah um, and the more you can be like right here's the rules go rather than right jog around these cones now side shuffle the yeah. more you get them going the quicker you're going to get that engagement Hundred percent. I mean, we've got a really captive audience, um, but to do that, to to do that more formal approach, like a ramp method, is really difficult. They're bouncing off the walls. They want to get going. So, if we, the more we can harness that energy, the better. I feel the session flows a lot better when I try and take control. If you like, I, I feel that's where it, it becomes difficult, and I also don't think that's what we should be doing. If they come down with bags of energy we shouldn't be punishing them for that and tell them to sit down be quiet listen to the instructions we should be thinking great they want to be here they're engaged let's give them something to invest that energy into straight away and we can layer up the complexity as we go you know every child knows how to play stuck in the mud you can tell the first year seven who's down at the pitch that's what you're going to be doing you can step back watch the game develop see who's engaged, who's not engaged. And then um, that can guide where you go next. And if your theme is um, to look at changing body heights, just add that constraint in two minutes into the game. You know, you don't have to start by setting out your intentions to the whole group, especially when you've got 40 odd year sevens who just want to run around and have fun. Uh, Let's let's go with that as much as possible. And also I think a slight difference between P and strength and conditioning is uh, in academies typically, or if you've got some kind of decent ethos, you will have everyone arrive at the same time. So yeah. if you've got your intricate ramp warm up set up, you can just get straight in. Whereas there's nothing that kills the energy more in a P lesson than when you get, for example, your kids who are desperate to get running around and they get to the lesson on time. And then a couple come a couple of minutes late. There's nothing worse than telling the kid who's desperate to get going. No, no, no. You need to wait yeah. until we've got the whole class here because it messes with my intricate ramp warm up. Oh yeah. hundred percent. You know, give that first child that gets there 
a tennis ball, ask him to show you what he can do with it. And then he can show the next person to come down. She can show the next person. All of a sudden, you've got 40 tennis balls being thrown about. And then you can, you know, blow your whistle or shout something out. Next up, I want you to do this. And they've all got their equipment. Some of them have been moving for two minutes. Some of them have just arrived. But the flow of the session is so much better. And you've already got one of your outcomes, which is engagement from everyone. And it's self-determined and self-led by those that arrive first because they are going to get those extra layers and extra exposure. But you're affording the same opportunity to every student to do that. Absolutely. Something that um, a colleague of mine mentioned when we were talking about lesson planning uh, the other day, which I really liked, was um, so we were talking about how lesson planning differs when you're on your PGC versus when you're in your first um, official teaching role. And he mentioned that one of the schools he was on placement with, and I love this idea, they wanted to come up with what they called a five minute lesson plan. Now, not to say, oh, you should only spend five minutes investing in it, but just the idea as a concept. And the first thing they wanted was what they called a hook. Um, So how are you getting kids engagement? Now, I know we said um, about moving away from a sport based model of PE, but I'm just going to use this as an example. But if, for example, I could dunk, which at five foot seven is probably never going to happen. But if you've got that first kid who's keen as mustard, hooked on I don't know you show them a dunk or you show them a layup or whatever and he's desperate to see if he can try it already you've got the context for your lesson set out and even the kids yeah. who are now arriving a little bit late if you've had time to coach this kid one-on-one they're like, oh that's cool I want to do that and yeah where I'd love the position I'd love to get to as a teacher is that that hook is so good that the kids are almost running to the lesson because they don't want to miss out because that is going to be the best bit yeah definitely um it's, it comes down to environment for me. We are, um, my, I see my biggest job as being like the architect of the environment rather than the leader of every single element of the session. Um, so I like to step back as much as possible and let, um, and let it play out. For me, the detail of the, of the session is, comes from my knowledge and experience and is for me. Uh, the kids don't need to know uh, everything I know because I'm not the one that's playing and, 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 and that would take away the fun and the enjoyment. So if I can put everything into creating this environment, like you say, that is a giant hook, then uh, that's where I, I, I see my investment being the, the most valuable rather than, um, you know, in the, in the detail of, of, of everything we do within that environment. And I think that's also for me, another key, potential difference with s and c and pe now not to say that just because you're in a strength and conditioning environment you need to bore the athlete behind the mechanics of their landing and how it reduces injury or anything like that yeah. but at pe that p level there's what they absolutely need to know and if they express an interest maybe you have a discussion but there's yeah. no need for them to know all the ideas that are in your head at any one time definitely i think we we need to support their autonomy and um, as I mentioned, our, our method for levelling is about self-determination. So the provision and the extra detail is there if, if they express an interest in it. But it's not, they're not, you know, it sounds awful. But they're not like empty vessels for us to fill with our knowledge. Um, it's, it's on offer if they show that, that intrinsic interest to want to know more.
Absolutely. And um, just coming into a uh, just coming into a close a little bit. Obviously, you mentioned you do a lot of work with pupils with uh, dyspraxia. Uh, do you have any general? I mean, you've kind of given a few examples uh, indirectly throughout the podcast. Do you have any general recommendations for easy differentiation, for want of a better word, when it comes to either lesson planning or specific um, models within PE or anything like that? Um, in terms of a movement uh, point of view, the, the stuff we do in the gym on that that rotation I mentioned, um, I found that ex- external cues work really well with dyspraxic students. Um, the model I've kind of developed is is to use an object or something external to remove some of the anxiety around movement. And then when they've acquired that movement, we go back into the awareness of their own body. So uh, to give you an example, I think I put a video up yesterday on Twitter of um, rolling some kind of ball up and down your spine to, because there's a fit, there's they they can connect to the feeling of where the ball is rather than asking them to, you know, move segments of their spine, which is hard for anyone, regardless of you, if you're dyspraxic or not. And then we can question. It's the same as our approach to gamification and sports. It's about guiding and nudging and questioning rather than uh, presenting with the technical model and then, you know, holding them to that. Uh, so, yeah, I, I like to use an object to remove anxiety about movement as they develop more control of the object or the external thing we go back into the awareness of how they've done that and that could be with peer coaching or videos um that's kind of the approach in the gym in terms of what we do down on the pitch because we're not asking for isolated skills we can tailor the access based on where they're at in terms of movement competency. So like I said, if they are struggling with the catch and pass concept and this is resulting in them not moving at all in the lesson, can we remove that complexity so that they start moving by giving them a roll like a drone with a pool noodle? And then, or or can we change the size of the ball or add multiple balls so that those students who are struggling to access have more touches. Um, and I think when you lead with with isolated skills, it, it's difficult to do this stuff, but there are essentially no rules to what we're doing. The rules are everyone engages and everyone gets stretched to their level. So you put your you you have your own take on that as a as a practitioner. No, I love that. And I also think, again, going back to probably what's been the theme of this uh podcast is if you start with just sport and that is your quote-unquote outcome then already the kids are disengaged and already it's hard to stretch because even if hypothetically you think right well we'll just add a different ball into this isolated drill you're still going to have students who can't do it and dare I say if you've got for example your low ability pupil with a giant swiss ball or beach ball or whatever and you're doing isolated work and you've got other kids with a rugby ball yeah it's almost a big marker of guess what this kid, you know, even though kids might not be that switched on to realize it's still up. Hey, this kid can't do it. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's very subtle. It, 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 our approach, I feel, and uh, no, that it's not clear who, who is using that equipment because they feel more comfortable or 
who has naturally been so sort of engrossed in the game that that's what they've picked up just as part of their expression of, of joy and being in the moment. Yeah, brilliant. I couldn't have said it any better. And uh, in in wrapping up, if so I've got four questions left. If, okay. you, if you could observe one other coach or one other teacher uh, or person, whoever, with their athletes or the people they work with, who would you observe and why? Um, we haven't really mentioned it. We've sort of lots of good stuff, but I think environment and culture is huge. Um, we For a small school of, of 260 pupils, we, we punch well above our weight in, in senior rugby. So for me... Um, Razi Erasmus, uh, South Africa head coach, I think that would be so interesting. I think the, the players uh, run through walls for him and I would love to be a fly on the wall in terms of that culture, environment, building process. Because for us as PE teachers, we have the unique um, point of view of seeing students outside the context of a lesson. Our lessons never end. They're, they're on the playground, they're a passing comment in in the corridor you know we're lucky students will come up to us during break times so how do we harness that build an environment and culture that you know feeds itself is massive um i'm a massive fan of uh russell earnshaw and the magic academy i think more snc professionals need to look at um the human element of coaching that, that comes before anything for me. And um, I think their their methodology around engagement is, is really interesting. I've never actually seen uh, Rusty uh, in person coaching. So I know he does a lot of stuff, but that, that would that would be something I'd be keen to do. So that they're my two, uh, just off the cuff. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, and if you could give listeners one key take home for this podcast. Um, it's... It's support autonomy for me. I think we need to realise we're not the most important part of the process as a teacher, coach, S&C coach. Um, even if you're dealing with higher level athletes, can you almost make yourself redundant um, in that you're supporting that athlete's autonomy to look after themselves, become better problem solvers, decision makers, well-rounded individuals? Um and that can only be done for me when we realise that we are the guides, the architects, the nudges, you know, not the, the key, you know, central part. Yeah, spot on. Spot on. I like that a lot. And uh, one recommended resource, so it can be a podcast, a book, an app, maybe something you use daily. Uh, what I use daily is a technique called motivational interviewing. Yeah. Um, and uh, Stephen Rolnick's got a great book called um, Coaching Athletes to Be Their Best. That if we if we want to do what I've just alluded to and, and support autonomy, be the guides, we need to uh, use an approach and language that promotes that. And for me, that book is a great resource um, for any teacher or coach, regardless of subject. I think if 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 you if you read that book, you you probably have implement parts of it. Who was the uh, who was the author? I'll put that uh, in the show Steve, notes. Stephen Rolnick. He's a South African guy. How do you spell Rolnick? Oh, 
Don't worry, I'll, I can Google it if needs to be. Yeah, I, I, I'll send you it because I don't want to make a mistake. I'm dyslexic myself, so I don't want to do a, a disservice. No, not a, not a problem at all. And uh, finally, for, so for example, I've seen some of the brilliant stuff, uh, the videos you've been putting out on Twitter. But if anyone wants to reach out to you, how will they get in touch? Yeah, probably Twitter. I like Twitter because I like to be really transparent with what we're doing. And I, I'd like more people to... to uh, offer some feedback you know negative or or positive um everything we're doing on there is pretty raw i'll just get my phone out and and be quite in the moment with what i'm seeing uh, so I, i'm big on twitter um instagram i use less so but i do have a platform on there and i'm happy to um give you my email people can get in touch if they if they want to go into more detail Perfect. And your uh, your Twitter handle for those people listening? I mean, I'll put this in the show notes anyway. Yeah, Twitter handle's just um, underscore and coach. It used to be S&C coach, but then, uh, as we probably alluded to, I, w- I wasn't quite as sure that that's what I was anymore, uh, nor did I want to be. So it's just and coach. Um, so you can put whatever you want before that now is the thinking behind it. <laughs> fair enough fair enough um right i'll uh i'll stop the recording there and i'll chat to you offline but thank you very much for giving up your time on a sunday afternoon ross no problem at all it's been very enjoyable a really uh reflective process for myself as well which is great happy days right i will speak to you offline in a second thank you for listening to episode number 25 of the platform to perform podcast with myself todd davidson and today's guest ross williams if you've enjoyed the podcast i would love it if you would find the time to leave me a review via your preferred podcast listening platform if you're in a position to support the podcast or you simply want access to the educational strength conditioning content including programs and all of my calisthenics kids lessons that i've delivered then head over to my patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash todd davidson p2p coaching join me next week where i'll be speaking with best-selling author of essentialism which is one of my favorite books uh, greg mckeon thank you for listening and i will catch you again in the next episode